In New Jersey, we found some key Democratic Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. And this week, well, there's a lot going on this week. So let's just jump right into it. We've got <laughs> Murph, of course, we're going to give you a quick coronavirus update. Murphy's Corner. We'll talk about all that all the stuff that we usually do. A New Jersey judge is removed after awful comments. And of course, we're going to talk about the George Floyd murder and the protests and police uh, overreaction after that. And then we'll talk, uh, Casey will tell us about donating uh, at a blood drive and, and some other things that people could, could do. After the headlines, Casey's going to review Murphy's cabinet. And I'm going to comment on um, the NJ Labor Commissioner's NJ 101.5 interview uh, that happened, I believe, last week. So, yeah, it's we got a, a lot. Treat. <laughs> There's a lot in this episode, and we need to not make it ha- go on for like four hours. So let's just, <laughs> let's just dive, <laughs> dive right in. The coronavirus numbers, as of May 28th, New Jersey has 153,000 confirmed cases, and we're over 10,000 deaths. We're at 11,081 deaths. Looks like it's slightly spiking upward, but it, that's just kind of misleading because the overall trend is is down. So like, you can't really just go on uh, one day of increased uh, coronavirus cases compared to like the previous day or two. But it is something to consider as the weather gets nicer and uh, people went out for um, what's that? Uh, the holiday we just had Memorial Day. Memorial um, Day. <laughs> yeah. So moving on, let's go to Murphy's Corner. What kind of executive uh, orders and reactions has he done? <laughs> He's only done one executive order as of this week. So Slacking. very, very slow week for Murphy, because usually we have at least a couple since the last time we've recorded, but this is only one. So it's executive order 149. Governor Murphy signs executive order allowing resumption of childcare services, youth day camps, and organized sports over the coming weeks. So the press release from his office says that... Basically, the order rescinds the emergency child care program under Executive Order 110 as of June 15th, and it permits child care centers to resume normal operations on or after June 15th, subject to their compliance with COVID-19 specific health and safety standards. Additionally, youth day camps can open on or after July 6th and must comply with COVID-19 specific health and safety standards. So this is... Good, I guess, but um, about the reopening, it's all about it's all in phase. Last time I checked, it's everything's still in phase one of his yeah, six point plan. I don't, I don't think we're technically in phase two yet. Yeah, it's just phase one, and nationally, we're in phase 3.75 or something like that. <laughs> Who knows what that means? Yeah. Uh, but I want to specifically break down on this, pre- in this press release from his uh, his office, so child care services. There are three highlights, child care services, youth day camps, and organized sports. So under child care services, he has effective 6 a.m. on June 15th. Child care centers and other child care facilities are permitted to resume operations for all clients. And previously, it was specifically for um, essential workers and uh, people on the front lines of the COVID outbreak. So provided that these child care services comply with the, the standards, as I said before, they're just repeating, like, as long as they... <laughs> as long as they comply with the standards, as long as they comply with the standards. So it'll be interesting to see how that's enforced. And each child care center must submit an 
acetation to the Department of Children and Families no later than 24 hours prior to the anticipated opening date. Or in case of currently operating emergency child care centers within 14 days of the effective date of this order. So if they're already open because they're, you know, operating for emergency child care centers, um, then it's going to be 14 days after this, this order is in effect. Youth day camps, youth summer camps shall be permitted to operate on or after Monday, July 6, 2020, provided that they comply, of course, with the standards and applicable statutes, regulations, and executive orders. And um, they must also submit an acetation to the Department of Health no later than 24 hours prior to their anticipated opening date, attesting that they will follow, again, all the safety standards and then organized sports effective June 22nd. Sporting activities included, including organized sports activities, are permitted in outdoor settings only, provided they do not involve any person-to-person contact or routinely entail individuals interacting within six feet of each other, which doesn't... (laughs) Does that mean no football? Does that mean no football, uh, no hockey, like uh, basically any sport besides golf? Maybe tennis is okay. Baseball? No, because you tag people, right? You tag, you know, so... Shows you how much I know about sports. Yeah, maybe volleyball. Uh, That'd be really really easy in volleyball because uh, if you have to stand six feet away from each other. Yeah, <laughs> but I often run into the people on my team and some people that are yeah. not on my team when I play volleyball. Um, but that's also because I drink when I yeah, I'm not the best. <laughs> not coordinated <clears throat> and also probably drunk if you see me playing a sport. And basically, all everyone needs to just abide by these the rules that are being imposed to prevent the spread. But also, they have to submit to the Department of Health um, prior to reopening. So. Again, it's we covered it last week about certain things reopening gatherings as long as there's certain measures in place by the people who organize the events or gatherings. But it's almost preventative. Like, what what sports are you going to be able to play, and why would you have any kind of like day camp where you can't interact? Like, that's the point of going. And I, I don't know. I don't have kids, so I feel like they yeah. would complain more by being forced to go to a day camp and then not do anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what Murphy said regarding uh, certain salons and gyms vowing to reopen in defiance of coronavirus rules. <laughs> so we mentioned that before, you know, the saga of the one gym owner in uh, Belmar, but there's some of that, there's been some others. And Murphy warned Thursday, this is according to NJ.com, that it's still too early for indoor businesses like gyms and salons to reopen as the coronavirus outbreak continues to slow in New Jersey. He's he's right, I, I believe, on this. Murphy was asked to respond to social media groupings attempt, sorry, social media groups attempting to organize businesses for a coordinated defiance of the coronavirus closures on Monday, June first. "Quote: I would just say to folks, you're playing with fire," he said at his daily coronavirus briefing. It has to be done the right way and at the right time. And I think we're going to, if you bear with us over the next few days, we'll give some more guidance on that. Yeah. And he's right. I mean, he goes on to say, we've got to be exceedingly careful on indoor, sedentary, lacking ventilation, close proximity realities. Yeah, it's, it's really dumb to reopen in defiance of coronavirus, whereas you're probably not going to get great <laughs> business anyway. And and again, you're just going to get the guy's gym got shut down. You got a uh, notice of embargo. And that's what's going to happen to your business yeah. So just don't. Just don't, don't do it. Don't be a little reactionary <laughs> business owner. Like just, just like 
bear with this for a little bit. You already get federal assistance anyway. Like, anyway, I don't want to be too dismissive, but it's just, it's ridiculous. They're going to endanger yeah. public health just for their own little po- uh, profit. Yeah, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. And following that up, the same thing as like last week when we covered the gyms, the churches are trying to sue the state. I'm wondering if gyms will also start to threaten to sue the state and if that's going to have any bearing on Murphy's decision making. I don't think it is because it hasn't so far. <laughs> good good question. So related to the health stuff, I have a story from NewJerseyGlobe.com where they, where they say uh, Murphy fired a top state health official running the emergency preparedness office. Oh and uh, this, this is uh, articles by David uh, Wildstein. Christopher... Newworth, who had joined Governor Phil Murphy at several early press briefings, was the Assistant Commissioner of Public Health Infrastructure, Laboratories, and Emergency Preparedness, and oversaw emergency medical services and the State Office of Disaster Resilience. Two sources who spoke on the condition of anonymity told The Globe that Newworth was terminated for calls. Newworth faced criticism at the Department of Health for poor attendance at his $127,386 per year job during the pandemic. Concurrent with his, with his full-time post as Deputy Commissioner, Newworth also had a job with Mar- Margolis Healy & Associates, a national emergency management consulting firm affiliated with the Cozen O'Connor Law Firm, collecting two paychecks. How about that? What? Yeah. So it says the firm's website lists Newworth as a senior associate and says he has been employed there for two years. Personal financial disclosure statements Newworth filed with the State Ethics Commission did not reveal his affiliation with Margolis Healy. According to his financial like disclosure... Sounds like a Oh, this is so New Jersey. According to his financial <laughs> disclosure, Newworth is an owner of the Emergency Manager Project LLC, which provides training classes for EMS professionals who are licensed and regulated by the office he ran. Sources also said Newark had dismantled some of the Department of Health's infrastructure to deal with a massive health crisis before the start of the pandemic. A decision he made regarding a federal grant for hospital preparedness being administered by a trade association has also faced some questioning. He had also been involved in the firing of Scott Phelps as a director of the State Office of Emergency Medical Services in February. In March, Newarth testified for the, for the House Homeland Security Subcommittee on Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Recovery, chaired by Representative Donald Payne of Newark as a representative of the Murphy administration. The day before his testimony, Margellis Healy touted their employees' pending testimony on Twitter, quote, be sure to catch our colleague Christopher Newarth discuss coronavirus preparedness in response to the Committee on Homeland Security tomorrow. Newarth did not immediately respond to the 9.35 p.m. direct message on his social media account seeking wow. comment. A cell phone number previously associated with him has been disconnected. Murphy's office did not immediately respond to comment. Um, wow. That, this is like New Jersey written all over it. You couldn't make this up. Yeah. It is so New Jersey. Yeah. I wasn't going to read the whole article, but I just couldn't stop it. <laughs> it was like a... It was like a twist, like, but wait, there's more. He was oh, collecting wait. two paychecks, but wait, he also dismantled uh, the health stuff beforehand. He directly profited off of uh, uh, <laughs> his work uh, there. Wow. He lied on his ethics report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just kept, keeps going. So yeah, Murphy fired him. That's that's, that's good. That's good. But I'm Murphy. Yeah, probably, I don't know if he was there beforehand. Did Murphy appoint him? Did I... Well, that's the thing. I think uh, Murphy, he, he could have been there beforehand because that's in the, the health department, you said? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if he appointed, because it's, and we'll talk about it in my segment, but there's a lot of bloat in oh, yeah. the state government. I, I couldn't find if he's been <laughs> uh, appointed. I, I, Forget it. What do we have next? Um, okay, I have Murphy comments about laying off workers. Uh, we've been following this story because uh, it's 
it's pretty big, the amount that he's saying he might have to cut. Uh, I think we've mentioned before, it's about 200,000 people. But Thursday's press conference, Murphy gave more comments about it. Um, so I want to read it this is from a Fox News article. New Jersey may have to cut 200,000 public workers if no federal help. Governor Murphy said in an interview Thursday that without financial help from the federal government, his state will likely have to cut 200,000 public employees, including police officers and firefighters. He said, quote, I don't think there's any amount of cuts or any amounts of taxes that begin to fill the hole. The alternative to not getting that funding is a whole lot of layoffs. We think as much as 200,000 or more. He said, Mount, uh, Murphy vowed to cut $5 billion uh, from the state's budget, but the state's expected to still have about a $10.1 billion revenue shortfall. Again, we've, we've mentioned this for us because of the coronavirus and the lockdown, the state's starving for funds and the federal government's basically purposely neglecting us as, uh, I would say, as punishment for being a Democratic-leaning state, to be honest. That's what it seems like. What do you think, Casey? Um, I'd have to agree. Yeah. So that's not good. And we're talking about reopening, and Murphy's also expressed some concerns, concerns that, that we've had, that New Jersey is going to be more at risk for a second wave of coronavirus cases than other states. Murphy... Does he specifically cite gyms and churches? Oh, <laughs> oh, let's find out. Um, he said, since it's the densest state in America and also the densest region in America, that we're, quote, we're probably more at risk than other parts of the country for a second wave. And he doesn't really go into much more detail in this interview. But I think a lot of that fear, I hope he's worried, his attention, I mean, is on like the tourism. I think that's almost more, it's worth our focus more than just how New Jerseyans are going to be acting in the nicer weather, uh, is how people outside New Jersey are going to come to our state to come to our beaches, as we mentioned before, and and other sites of tourism and and spread the coronavirus, which is like pretty much guaranteed to happen. So I, I hope the governor can somehow take the necessary precautions, but I don't really know how uh, we're going to do that and and reopen these things at the same time. Uh, Casey, you had uh, something about education. Yeah, it, it's with reopening and trying to figure out what's going to reopen. He keeps talking about it's going to be the, the data is going to specifically push him towards opening some things, but it's not going to be good because we're an attractive nuisance. A lot of our state is uh, tourism industry focused and it's not going to be good by any means, economically, health-wise, COVID spreading wise. Second wave is going to be um, basically guaranteed at this point. And Murphy also, this will just be a nice little way for the cherry on top to end <laughs> Murphy's corner. So according to NorthJersey.com, headline is Governor Murphy cuts $336 million for schools. And here are the 375 districts that hurts. So basically, we talked about it basically in our first episode about how the administration was specifically targeting education and trying to fund a lot of a lot of school districts in the state and his budget really that was like the crown jewel was that he was going to put all this money into education and now with covid it's uh <laughs> it's basically cutting off education at the knees so on this past thursday the department of education released uh, new funding numbers and some of the biggest losers according to the figures released on thursday according to this article from northridge.com 
Newark loses $36 million. Um, so they're going to have $36 million less than the proposed budget in February. The total aid is going to be $829 million. Elizabeth is losing $17 million than what was proposed in February. Total aid is going to be $413 million. Patterson is losing $16 million. Total aid is going to be $447 million. Trenton is going to have $13 million less than the proposed February budget, a total aid of $257 million. And Plainfield is going to have $13 million less than the proposed in February, total aid of $147 million. So this whole article has a real breakdown of county and district, and they have listed the proposed 2021 aid that was posted in February, and they have the revised 2021 proposal as of May. And this is, they do list the change in the budget. So it's very, very startling. And based on the conversation we had last week on the knowing that this was going to come down the line and knowing that schools are going to have to decide where they're making their cuts basically in June. So it's not looking good for teachers. It's definitely not looking good for students. And it's definitely not looking good for those regions that have been listed in this article as being- I wonder if that 200,000 state workers number includes the the estimated uh, layoffs of teachers or if that's a separate figure. That's separate. That's going to, it's going to be a school school decision. Yeah, yeah. So you have, you know, it's, it's going to be really terrible because $36 million, that's a lot of dollars. (laughs) Yeah, that's awful. And, and these are areas that are, they need that money. And also it's just going to further push people to leave the state. A lot of the reasons why people put up with New Jersey's high property taxes, because at least we have decent primary and secondary schools and and universities, of course. But so if, 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 they have to raise like property taxes to make up for that shortfall or or if uh, the layoffs cause a decline, which it probably will in the quality of education, I don't see how it couldn't. Then I imagine people are going to be like, well, I'm fed up with this. Why? Why be here? And uh, that, that sucks for New Jersey overall. Yeah. And it's it's also just the the regions that are being impacted, the school districts. If you scroll down to the list, you have the counties that have no change in the budget, which are, you know, like. Warren and Sussex and <laughs> Ocean, Mammoth, a zero dollar change, and then you, and then you get into you know Newark and and Elizabeth. So you kind of see where they target it. Yeah, and it's not a good could, look. It's not a good look because, like I've said before in the previous segment from last week's episode, education is the way to move your life forward. So if you are a student in Newark, which is not the best area, you were able to put your faith in your education and be able to see a future. And I'll get about that um, in our next segment when we talk about um, the protests and what people can do. But education is such a great vehicle to change your life, you know, (laughs) and to cut millions of dollars from education from these major cities it's awful like there's no other way to describe it and it's gonna come in the loss of teachers in those neighborhoods and it's gonna be devastating for class sizes for the attention there's gonna be no incentive to become a teacher and especially a teacher in newark you know what i mean like what is what's what's driving this decision very upsetting news 
But moving on to more upsetting news. <laughs> yeah. So before we get to the protests, I just wanted to talk about something I read in the news. Um, according to CNN.com, judge in rape case removed after asking accuser if she closed her legs. So this is a pretty horrible story. With you mean she didn't ending. have a way of shutting it down? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh this was a New Jersey Superior Court judge who was just recently removed from his position after he had several misconduct claims, including because he one of them, I mean, was he asked an alleged rape victim how she tried to stop the assault. And in one of the misconduct claims, the complaint said, I'm oh, sorry, let me give the guy's name. The judge's, the former judge's name is John F. Russo Jr. Russo's questioned a woman about how she tried to stop an alleged sexual assault, including if she tried to block her body parts or close her legs after she described her assault allegations to the court. His conduct breached the public's trust, Rabner said in his opinion. Uh, his pattern of misconduct and unethical behavior not only undermined the integrity of different court proceedings, but also impaired his integrity and the judiciary's. His overall behavior reflects a lack of probity and fitness to serve as a judge. And according to the order, Russo claimed he was trying to help a demoralized witness on cross-examination and get her re-engaged in the hearing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We we all believe that. Um so yeah, but basically they denounced him for saying that his questions were coarse and not relevant and neither appropriate nor tasteful. And yeah, he's been kicked out. He could have easily um, just asked her like what she was wearing. Did she say no? <laughs> like, or just like describe the account of Yeah. But those are those are the notorious things people ask people who have been victims of sexual assault of like, what were you wearing? Did you say no? Did you make it clear? What time of night was it? Why were you out? Why did you have that drink? Why didn't you do this? Why did you like, yep. as the judge, you, you should know what that does to a victim. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Here's some of the other things that he had uh, complained against him. The other counts relate to Russo asking for preferential treatment for scheduling his son's custody case. That's not good. <laughs> And also declined to recuse himself from a high school classmate's spousal support case. Wow. Well, I mean, it's unbecoming of a judge, as they would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should be, but apparently a lot of judges in this country suck. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this one got removed, so yeah, that's some light news. It's a, now, it's a good day. Let's, let's jump right into it. Let's talk about George, George Floyd and uh, the protests and police. So just a quick background. George Floyd was an African-American man in Minneapolis, right? Who yes. was killed by Officer Derek uh, Chauvin, I think is how you pronounce his name. And who really cares? <laughs> uh, you can, I watched the video and it's terrifying. You just watch this cop kneeling on this guy's neck and uh, yes. he, just, he just kills the guy. And there's yeah. like other cops in, around them just watching it happen. And, and there's also, I don't know if you've seen yeah, it, there's also security footage of the officers they have him in handcuffs and they're walking him to the car and yeah. he's not resisting arrest. He gets in That's the car. Key because they originally said, because originally all we have is that cell phone video. Yeah. And they said, the police, I mean, said that he tried to resist arrest because they always say that. They always lie and say, yeah. oh, you know, he deserved to be killed extrajudicially. And then. Owner a rat. <laughs> yeah. But then I'm so glad that the, I think it was a shop owner. Yeah. That. He, instead of giving the footage to the police for the investigation where it would have been, you know, lost. <laughs> yeah, he just released it to, I think, a news uh, uh, agency. And then yeah. that's how we saw the footage of him. He was already detained. Yes, he was in a already car. Already detained. Arrested. And 
then they just basically take him out and fucking kill him. So yeah. it's 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 just terrible. And I don't think we need to go too much into the whole background of uh, how it's been. We were talking a little bit before we started recording. I was trying to remember how long it's been since Trayvon Martin was killed. And I think it's been eight years now. And this stuff just happens all the time with no change. So it finally has erupted into, I think this is accurate, what our, the, the largest riots or revolts in um this country's history in um a long time in like many decades i I can't actually think of when maybe rodney king maybe rodney king is the closest when he was killed uh uh, this is it started in minneapolis and it just spread atlanta it's it's all over and people are burning police stations uh they're looting stores and i don't want to get into like the blame game of how people refer to like protesters like oh you know they try to divide protesters and supporters up saying oh but these ones you know they're burning police stations oh they're violent and all this stuff but it's very clear that we have to mention that the the police have escalated the violence everywhere yes everywhere slate.com did a a, i think an amazing job uh with their headline uh matthew decim wrote that the police erupt in violence nationwide and it's a great article i recommend everyone go read it it's very short but it just includes a lot of video evidence of what we're saying it's you can watch police officers and national guards men just shooting residents that are just sitting on their porches you, yeah. uh, with, with rubber bullets you can watch the, the nypd drive their vehicles into a crowd of protesters you can watch uh multiple things of journalists getting um shot at with rubber rubber bullets uh a cnn journalist was arrested on live television and then the then the minneapolis police lied and said that um they didn't know that they were journalists and, but we like all watched on TV as they arrested the CNN journalists. Yeah, and I want to highlight. Gear. I want to highlight the media's involvement for this round of because when Ferguson happened, you had some member at the time. There were some reporters who were being arrested because they were loitering in like a McDonald's, and they were all very upset because they were saying that you know it's freedom of the press. We should be able to come in here, but it was. You, they were technically, and that was one of my, um, in journalism school, they said, like, make sure you're not, quote unquote, committing any kind of crime while you're reporting, because then it gives the officers an opportunity to arrest you and keep you from reporting the news and what's going on. So a lot of journalists were arrested because they were charging their phones and their equipment in a store without purchasing anything. Um, which was like a rookie mistake because all you needed to do was buy something off the dollar menu and then you could charge your phone. You know what I mean? And this round of protests and um, civil unrest is showing that reporters are being shot. Reporters are being arrested for reporting the news. People are being physically assaulted by police, by the National Guard, and reporters are in the, the herd of it. You know what I mean? And now everywhere every news organization has reporters on the ground in these cities and they're being physically harmed and i don't think the media has ever been hit this way and it's yeah. making them report in a different way it's saying it, the police are they're being, being so violent. savage <laughs> yes the police are being uh they're completely unrestrained right now and it, it's it's shocking to see because like you and i we know the police do this kind of stuff all the time they do it to protesters and they'll even do it to uh for instance at the uh inauguration protests that were happening in 
uh, January when when Trump was first inaugurated uh, back in 2016, or sorry, I guess it'd be January 2017. Uh, alternative media were arrested. You had like I think Amy Goodman's Democracy Now yes. got in trouble. You had the uh, people from RT and I love her too. People in RT and elsewhere got in, uh, in trouble. And um, these independent freelancers, everyone exactly. that was, you know, that, on the that, fringe, quote unquote. Right. But now it's they're they're going. The police are just spewing everyone that's not police as an enemy. You can see there's now increasing evidence of um, the technical term is agent provocateur, which means uh, police and uh, undercover police officers or maybe FBI embedded in protesters in the protest to incite violence like we have a very good evidence of that there's videos of of what is clearly the most cop looking person uh dressed <laughs> unlike any protester i've ever seen and i've been to quite a few yeah just smashing windows he has like a umbrella and like a high quality gas mask on it, it, everything yeah. and like cop shoes or cop boots like everything about him is cop, cop shoes <laughs> and, uh, so uh, again i wanted to actually play i think i found the audio of what Martin Luther King had to say about uh, riots, because there's this thing that liberals like to do where they kind of condescendingly dangle Martin Luther King over any kind of like outburst of black, like anger and yeah. protest. And the condescension is that, oh, you're not living up to Martin Luther King, how he would have done it. And it's, it's, it's just racist. <laughs> Let me just yeah. say it. And, it's, and it's racist you, as hell, and it's not even true. <laughs> and it, it, he was also one, like, he was public enemy number one. Yes. At the time that he was alive, and he yeah. was assassinated. Yes. You know, it, what does that say when you're, I mean, everyone should uphold Martin Luther King, his teachings, everything. But yeah. when you say, do what Martin Luther, Martin Luther King did, okay, he was assassinated. Okay, so I think I have the... I think this is it. This should be this quote. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Ah, oh, man. It's just a... I, I wish I could speak like that. Um, he, I think he so perfectly articulated. There's two things about um, first, just perfectly articulated to capture what I think is the, the essentially the meaning of riots, like why people are doing it. it. It's decades 
of injustice and rage at injustice is simmering and finally boiling over in a period of intense fear and anger at not just, I think, the racial elements that are happening, but you're getting a lot of white people involved too, because there's a higher level of, I think, uh, social justice consciousness among uh, white Americans now who, who think- understand that the police are awful, but also it's the economics that's going on too. Like people are not living great lives right now. And the other thing is, what's sad is how true these words are from how many decades ago they still equally apply today. Yeah, it's also an interesting time because with the global pandemic, communities of color have been majorly impacted because of years of inadequate health care, of being put in, um, what is it called, food deserts, and yes. being treated by healthcare professionals I don't even know the correct word for it. Injustly, like there's injustice in every aspect of it, and that we've all been education too. Yes, so you have this moment where it's coming to a boiling point on so many different levels, and you. It was just last week before the protests where people were the conversation was shifting towards why is the virus specifically? It's no longer just targeting you know old people as it used to be. You know what I mean? It's it's deeply making an impact in the the black community because you have these systems in place for years and for generations that have dealt an uneven hand to a specific community and then you have the police brutality that is widespread and just no one is being held accountable you know and it's this- there's nothing but just frustration there. And there's like, it's at a point where no one knows what else they can do. You know, people who are being voted in the office, you're thinking, oh, things are going to change because we have a a quote unquote, like more diverse representation. New Jersey alone has a, a black senator and a Hispanic senator. And still like there is, there is widespread violence and just injustice towards the community. And it seems like nothing's being done. And I'm, we're all speaking, me and you are both white. And we're constantly asking, like, what can we do? Like, how do we can just educate ourselves and volunteer and do whatever we can and spread awareness. But there's widespread systematic injustice. And it's in every, every facet of everyone's lives. You know what I mean? It's plus here's the thing. Um, <sighs> you have Democrats that are trying to funnel this into an electoral thing. We were saying like, oh, you know, you see the vote. Yeah, but here's the (laughs) issue. Um, Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis has a Democratic mayor, uh, Democratic government. And when, what's her name? Um, Amy Klobuchar was, uh, um, uh, what was she, uh, DA there? I can't remember exactly. She declined prosecuting uh, cops who did stuff like this. So so what what these people really are facing, and not just these people mean the protesters, but even anyone who cares about this stuff, is like it cares about injustice is really facing this choice where where what avenues that were told to go to have political change have been completely neutered and prevented us from for decades now from being able to actually affect any real substantive political change and then we're told we're just supposed to deal with this yeah and you have to add on obviously the the racial element of that too for black americans with their unique history of uh, slavery, Jim Crow, and then, you know, well, the mass incarceration regime that extends to this day. And here's the other thing. They tried to pe- peacefully protest for years, and nothing happened. 
they tried kneeling and people freaked out at them kneeling just during like football games and stuff yeah. like that. So how are how are people now surprised that when you've denied these people justice and any avenue for getting justice other than a riot? I mean, do you, do we have does anyone actually believe that this cop would have been charged uh, with at least 30 third degree murder if the riots didn't happen? Yeah. They were prepared to say they they were literally prepared to lie to us. Well, not that they prepared, they they, they already did lie and say <laughs> that he uh, resisted arrest and it was justified. Yeah. At each at each incident, the police escalated it. They could have detained. First of all, they could have never had this guy because there's been previous complaints of him abusing his uh, um, uh, authority and power as a police officer and being violent. So they could have fired him before. Never happened. Then this incident happens. They could have immediately arrested him and charged him with murder for what he did. We all saw it. Didn't happen. They defended him. Then they lie, which is you know further defending him. Then they uh, start repressing uh, peaceful protests. And what it looks like is even trying to discredit the protest by inserting uh, agent provocateurs. So at each incident, incident, the police all across the country have been escalating these protests into riots. And um, it's really frightening. We have Trump right now. Uh, we, some areas already had the National Guard. He's also stoking in, the fire with stoking his Stoking the fire when tweets. the loot looting starts the, the shooting starts i think he said yeah and you, he also uh he's bragged about um ordering the army to like prepare live ammunition i don't think this is going to go how he thinks it does if he if, if they slaughter it like if they do like a kent state 2.0 yeah there's gonna be more and for listeners riots. who don't know about kent state uh, yeah fair enough <laughs> um yeah it was like a protest at a college in new uh actually where was it, it was ohio i think it, it could have been ohio or iowa i'm gonna look it up real quick uh yeah yeah it was in kent ohio and it's it's kind of famous. It was on uh, May fourth, nineteen seventy. The Ohio National Guard was called in at because there was a crowd of students at Kent State University demonstrating against uh, the Vietnam War and the and the drafts and other things like that. And they fired at the crowd and they killed four and wounded nine uh, with li- live ammunition. Live ammunition, yeah. And all and I want to. This is the scary thing is that. What we're seeing is we're seeing rubber bullets, we're seeing pepper spray, we're seeing batons, we're seeing protesters being basically like mowed over with vehicles. Uh, (laughs) But what I want to caution people is that I highly doubt that those weapons that we're seeing are the only filled with rubber bullets. You know what I mean? There's no way there's all those police forces, National Guard, um, with no one with live ammunition. And it only takes one person to severely severely harm people we're already seeing the damage of rubber bullets pepper spray all yeah, that i i i, I kind of had this false impression set of ignorance uh when i like many years ago you know i think rubber bullets like how much harm can they really do Ooh. rubber bullets can i mean you can actually get killed from rubber bullets depending on where you get hit but yeah they can do a lot of damage so they're they're being extremely malicious and shooting people in the eyes and yeah. we already have a court of uh one reporter who lost an eye from getting shot yeah, um, and they were happens- busting into people's windows. This yeah. one reporter said he was driving home, and the police just started shooting at his window, and like the glass shot, and he was like cut along the side of his face. Fortunately, it didn't look like he was too injured, but but still, it could have been way worse. It's yeah. close range. Some officers are shooting at close range with rubber bullets. It's- so this is this is bad. Um, what does it mean for New Jersey, though? <laughs> yeah, so I do want to talk about what was going on in New Jersey a little bit. So. Amazingly, uh, I, I don't think, from what I've read, the protests in New Jersey have been um, have devolved into this kind of vi- uh, violent stuff because 
at least in Camden, the cops actually marched with the protesters. They seem to have recognized that uh, the killing of George Floyd was uh, unjust and awful, and they didn't uh, uh, condone it, which which I think is actually... I mean, I was shocked. I don't, know, I don't even know how, what else to say. <laughs> I really didn't Camden. think that would happen. Yeah, if you I know really New Jersey, even if you're... If you're not even familiar, Camden's been on like the murder capital, one of the murder capitals of the world, year over year. It's notoriously known as a violent city. And this is slowly coming to a change because the new police chief has implemented a new policy of de-escalation and uh, a reevaluation of use of force. And it's remarkable that this is happening because it's it's New Jersey and it's Camden. Like we've joked about before, the only reason why you go to Camden is maybe the aquarium because it's notoriously known as a violent city. And this is changing because the police force, the Camden Police Department, is training its officers and promoting de-escalation to make clear that force is a very, very absolutely last resort. And this is something we talked about before with, I think, a couple of weeks ago when there was... An escalated situation, I think, in Jersey City, where the police started violently attacking people who were, quote unquote, um, ignoring the 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 state of emergency yes. orders. Yes. And it should never get to that degree. Like what we're seeing across the country right now, it should never get to that degree. There is number of ways of tactics of de-escalation that should be your first instinct as a police officer. Yeah, another thing, just to add, like, I don't even understand it from a police officer perspective because it's like they're they're literally doing everything to make the entire world hate them and just act like the evil little pricks that they are, and it, it, yeah. it's absolutely crazy. And um, it's because you have people who are like in New York. There were there's footage of police officers um, flashing the white power symbol. Yeah, you know, you have people who are and i i do, i want to say sweepingly that racist and bigoted actions are a a symbol of mental health issues like you it, it should be declared that way if you are racist you are mentally ill if you think I, that you're i think it's more uh just has to do with like ideology but we can talk about that another time yeah. um one thing i want to uh say because this is kind of breaking news is that trump is uh or just has declared Antifa, a terrorist organization. And I just need to explain that because a lot of people don't understand what Antifa is. Uh, Antifa in the news and in the president's discourse is often reported as a unified, like national, like radical anarchist organization that is like anti-fascist. And that is completely stupid and just not actually based in any fact whatsoever. Um, I, I, for people like listening who don't know that, like if you actually think that there's a national Antifa organization that with like a bunch of cells. Like you have no idea how actually weak and and um, few people are actually part of that kind of left wing stuff. So I'll just explain. Antifa is literally just short for anti-fascist. That's all it is. And there's different Antifa organizations or people who identify as Antifa because then they're you know like I I think actually most of us should identify as anti-fascist. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a noble thing. A given. <laughs> um, so here's the problem. Again, there's no national anti-fascist organizations. You can't just declare Antifa a terrorist organization. What does that mean? Who does yeah. that apply to? Is it me, who is someone who considers himself an anti-fascist, who doesn't think that we should have 
like authoritarian government and 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 racism and and things like that. People talk about black bloc. That's the thing they love talking about. Like, oh, this is the black bloc group. Uh, black bloc isn't a group. It's a tactic. It's like saying this is the sit-in group. Um, this is the strike group. Black bloc is a, a tactic uh, that's kind of imported from some European protests, but has come to take on its life of its own in the United States. Of you know, people usually dressed in black uh, to hide who they are, but, you know, with like sometimes masks or uh, what do you call them, scarves, and you know, being kind of more confrontational with the police and stuff like that. But I want to so highlight- you hear these things used, you need to like actually think about what do they mean, like learn about them. Because now yeah. Trump has basically declared uh, something that isn't a unified thing, a terrorist organization. So who gets that label applied to them now? Exactly. Is it you? Is it you that doesn't like fascism? Is it the person who's engaged in a protest right now, uh, just who thinks that police shouldn't be able to kill people indiscriminately all the time? Is it, the, is it somebody who, uh, uh, there was one anti-fascist organization I know in Philadelphia who put on, um, that pretty much the only thing they did was post uh, like a movie club where you just went and watched <laughs> movies that were like anti-fascist movies. Like, like uh, Inglourious uh, Bastards. Like, Inglour- actually, it wasn't Glorious <laughs> Bastards. Yeah, I was trying to remember the Quentin Tarantino film. So is yeah. watching uh, Inglourious <laughs> Bastards or maybe like some other uh, World War II flick, is that a uh, uh, something that uh, terrorist Jojo organizations Rabbit. do? <laughs> Yeah. So. But yeah, it's it, it's that poses the same question of if one thing is labeled bad, and that's a thing that I think I've talked about before on the podcast is like they try to simplify it so that you have good versus evil, good versus bad, and you can say anti-fascist organization is a terrorist organization. However, you're not making like the KKK a terrorist organization. You know what I mean? Like, when are you? deciding that something is a terrorist organization domestically versus just a domestic attack. You know, it's, it's interesting to see the opposite not being held accountable. You know what I mean? The point is, in my opinion, Trump wants to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization because it's a broad label that you can use to discredit any actual thing. Like the war on drugs, the war war on on terrorism. And also, (laughs) it'll be able to justify surveillance from an FBI perspective, because now I'm an Antifa terrorist, apparently, because I don't like fascism. So then uh, (laughs) that will uh, uh, be a way. Are we we being recorded right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Gotta hide this information that, you know, I take the stance that fascism is bad. It's 2020. Apparently, that's uh, something only terrorists do. But I want to... What I want to add is, I don't know if we're going to round out this conversation, but I do want to bring up the Camden, the police department, bringing it back to New Jersey. Um, I want to highlight that it is the Camden police chief, Scott Thompson, in this article from the Washington Post, um, posted August 21st, 2019, titled, Police must first do no harm, how one of the nation's roughest cities is reshaping use of force tactics. And I've cited this article earlier, um, but I do want to point out that the department revitalized its force principles and its force principles are as follows. So core principle number one, officers may use force only to accomplish specific law enforcement objectives. Core number two, 
Whenever feasible, officers should attempt to de-escalate confrontations with the goal of resolving encounters without force. Officers may only use force that is objectively reasonable, necessary, and as a last resort. For principle number three, officers must use only the amount of force that is proportionate to the circumstances, aka unarmed person uh, <laughs> in a protest. You don't need to shoot a rubber bullet in their face. For principle number four, deadly force is only authorized as a last resort and only in strict accordance with this directive and core Principle number five, officers must promptly provide or request medical aid. And core number, um, principle number six, employees have a duty to stop and report uses of force that violate any applicable law and or this directive. So Thompson told the Post, quote, much like a doctor's Hippocratic Oath, police must first do no harm. So that's how, you know, the tune is changing in Camden, which was notably one of the roughest cities in the world. And now it's becoming a place where protesters who are protesting the wrongful death of Floyd, they are walking alongside police officers who are not engaging and being violent. And this is a miracle for New Jersey. Yeah, I agree. Um, we'll probably have, I imagine this stuff's going to go on for a while. So we'll probably have more comments on this uh, next week. Yeah. As uh, stuff develops, and we'll be sure to follow this story. Casey, do you want to talk about um, doing blood and some other things? Yes. So with all this violence and chaos and just profound sadness that is sweeping the nation and New Jersey is not untouched by it, I wanted to highlight opportunities that people can uh, participate in and um, help, whether it is with COVID or with community outreach. So a while ago, when uh, the Ferguson uh, riots and protests were happening, I wanted to do something. I felt so helpless. So um, I saw one post when I was still on Facebook that encouraged people to volunteer within their communities and give back and do something, you know what I mean? Just anything. And um, so with that, I started to volunteer as a mentor with um, Catholic Charities. So I've been doing that. I took a break pre-COVID and now it's COVID, so I can't give another ment mentee, but I've been with the program for about six years now. And another thing with COVID, I I wanted to do something. I, I'm not medically trained. I don't, I'm not an essential worker. <laughs> like my skills don't translate to that. So the things, you know, we've done together is start this podcast to focus on New Jersey news and get people involved in local politics and highlight New Jersey issues for our listeners. But another thing that you can do is donate blood. So this brings me to my blood donation. I was very giddish. I always am about donating blood because I hate needles. I hate the process of giving actual blood. And I also am a, a platelet donor. And I hate that process because it takes almost two hours and I feel so uncomfortable afterwards. It, it, it just shakes me to my core. And I know this is encouraging anyone to donate, but <laughs> I do it anyway because I have rare blood. And at a time like this, people are in need of blood. Um, wherever there's violence, wherever there's illness, you need to have blood <laughs> and blood uh, blood parts of blood. So platelets and plasma and whole blood. And um, I think they do double, double red donation, which is a certain part of the red blood cell that they take out from your blood. Um, and it, it was an experience because I, with COVID, I have been uh, 
I don't think I've been drinking more. I've stopped my drinking phase of quarantine and moved into a fitness phase. So um, I don't have the excuse of I drank two days prior to donation, so I can't donate. So I wanted to go and experience it because it's an unsettling experience in general. But with the COVID regulations, I was very curious as to how they would accept donors into the blood bank. So when I arrived, I had an appointment. That's another thing you should be aware of there trying to keep their limitations on their capacity. So drop-ins are not, depends, you know, on what day, if you look on the, the registration and you see that there's a lot of vacancies and I guess you don't have to register, you could just drop in. But typically if you do plasma or platelet donation, you do need to make an appointment. So when you show up, hopefully you have an appointment and they had me stand one person at a time. They had us stand in the vestibule and had our temperatures taken. So that was a pre-screening, you know, anti-COVID tactic. And then you are ushered in once your temperature is cleared and you fill out the questionnaire. And then once you have your questionnaire and you go in and you get, again, you get your temperature taken again when you're inside the building and you get your weight checked and then they process you and you get your donation and everyone in there has a mask on and all the employees have gloves on and everything is sanitary as usual, but it was nice to see that they were as filled to occupancy as they could be. Because like I said before, you have the regulation if you can't have too many people in and donating and um, circulating because of the uh, regulations in place. But it was kind of heartwarming to see so many people wanting to give and wanting to help. So if you're feeling you know, helpless and you feel like you want to change that, you want to do something for good, I highly recommend um, donating blood because it's there's a lot of shortages because a lot of companies that have blood drives, they aren't having them because all their employees are working from home or have been you know laid off because of COVID. So there is a state of emergency of a blood shortage right now um, for the state of New Jersey So and probably a lot more states than New Jersey. So if you can and you're eligible, I highly recommend it. It is not as scary as I would have thought with COVID, but it's just typical scary of donating blood. Um, but. <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. Um, people who sometimes people can feel helpless because they want to help uh, society in some way, but they don't know the avenue of like how they could do it. And they might think they don't have the skills to help out in the ways that they might be seeing people do frequently. And I think giving blood is one of those things that people can, like anyone can really do um, that helps a lot of people um, for yeah. what uh, you end up doing. Like for, I don't want to say for the little, little effort because it is a lot of effort <laughs> to give blood, but you know what I mean? Like it's- Yeah, and, and if you are also, if you don't want to give blood or you can't get blood for whatever reason, you can always donate to various organizations with the... With the Floyd protests, there's a lot of um, nonprofits that are forming in the Minneapolis area to bail out people who are jailed during the protests. So according to The Cut, an article titled How to Support the Struggle Against Police Brutality, and they list a number of things you could do. So you can demand police accountability from your legislators. There's this organization called Campaign Zero that has they're accepting donations and it has a comprehensive guide to policies that aim to correct broken windows policing excessive force facial profiling for-profit policing and much more they also have an organization called reclaim the block a minneapolis organization devoted to reallocating the city's money away from the police department and toward quote community-led safety initiatives to which you can also donate 
And they also have a petition running to um, ask the city council to defund the police force, which would free up uh, a lot of resources to promote the safety and the health of the city's marginalized communities. There's also George Floyd's family had a GoFundMe to cover the funeral and burial costs, but I think they've surpassed their goal right now. Currently, as as I'm looking at it, they had a goal of uh, 1.5 million, and they've reached 5.6 million. That's incredible. It's really incredible and amazing. So, I mean, you could still feel free to to donate to them and keep those those funds going to the family, but. There's a number of organizations that you can still, I started donating a monthly donation to the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, but here's a a long list. So there's the Bail Project, Black Visions Collective, the National Bail Fund Network, um, a gas mask fund on this article. So come, if you, we could link to it also in um, the episode title page on our website so that you guys could go to it. Communities United Against Police Brutality, North Star Health Collective, the ACLU, Free Them All for Public Health. Um, there's also a COVID bailout in New York City. Um, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, Free Them All for Public Health, No New Jails, New NYC, uh, Know Your Rights Camp, Fair Fight. And this article is also recommending that if you join, you could feel free to obviously join a protest if you feel safely to do so. But those are things you can do. <laughs> yeah, I think those are all great things. I'll just add um, the National Lawyers Guild is is is, is usually a good one. And um, yeah, you already mentioned NAACP, so I would say that that's not bad either. It, it's yeah. it, uh, donating money can be a helpful, uh, passive way of contributing to a cause, especially if it's at a distance. Like I can't go to Minneapolis, <laughs> partly because of COVID, yeah. partly because <laughs> I can't afford to go to Minneapolis too far. Yeah, and there's but probably like um, help someone out there. In place. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's not even getting into that. Um, <laughs> I can't even get into Philly right now. Uh, yeah. So, but that ends up the the headlines segment of the episode. So Casey, you're going to be reviewing Murphy's Cabinet. Yes, it's a very exciting activity I did because I, coming from the corporate world, and also I have a little bit of a libertarian streak in me, very much pro small government where it makes sense. And so when looking at Governor Phil Murphy's cabinet, I was very shocked to see he has about 25 people in his cabinet, which <laughs> which is very alarming. So I wanted to bring up the idea of organizational psychology. So it's a very cutting edge field right now. So according to this group called it's a consulting group called Kate's Kessler. They're an organization consulting firm that's part of Accenture. In a paper titled Designing Adaptable Organizations for Tomorrow's Challenges, they say, quote, large global organizations have to maintain competitiveness by achieving a balance between pursuing growth, innovation, and responsiveness to customers on the one hand, and maximizing efficiency and the benefits of operating at a global scale on the other. They also have to rethink business strategies and operating models as we shift towards a digital economy. Having an effective organization design that allows firms to sense and respond rapidly to market changes is an important source of sustainable competitive advantage. Organization design is a critical capability that organizations need to build in order to be adaptable in the face of today's and tomorrow's challenges. So there are three, probably here, still working. So 
So there are three key elements, according to this paper that they published, elements of organization design that can be deployed to address this tension. So A, building networks and lateral connections that cut across structural boundaries. B, fostering and a quote, enterprise mindset that puts the longer term needs of the organization ahead of the more immediate concerns of individual business units or functions. And C, rethinking the role of the center from centralized to center-led. The center becomes an enabler that builds expertise and makes connections across the organization. So this all brings me to my topic today, which is Murphy's cabinet. So as I said before, he has 25 people basically reporting into him. And I would get into more details about the individuals, but I'm already doing um, so on the Instagram account. So uh, at Jersey Matters Podcast. Uh, so every week I'm showcasing another department's head and trying to research any personal details I can find about them. I have to say right off the bat, the Department of Children and Families Commissioner Christine Norbert Bayer, Bayer, B-E-Y-E-R, you know, we don't pronounce things correctly on this podcast. Uh, she was very elusive. I couldn't even find her birthday. I couldn't find her husband's name or how many children she has. I know she just possibly has a husband and a son because she's referenced them and um, on some of her tweets when I was doing a deep dive and in investigative journalism on her Twitter account, but I really couldn't find anything about her. So it's interesting to see how private these public people are. And with her specifically, it was strange because she's the head of the Department of Children and Family. So you would think that there would be more information about her children and family. Um, but maybe that's just me being like, I don't know. I'm a modern person. I'll share whatever. So back to Murphy's cabinet as a whole. So I was looking at this, uh, this study by the Harvard Business Review about how many direct reports you should have. And based on their review and research and other studies by other sources on the topic, any executive or manager should only have at least around six or seven direct reports. You know, like you shouldn't go above that because if you think about your, your friend group, are you going to be a better friend if you have many acquaintances or if you have a close circle of friends? I don't think you can adequately divide your attention and understand your friend's individual needs and concerns and be able to really truly connect with them and understand what their passion and what matters to them, unless you have a small number in that circle that you're close with. And even on any kind of team I've been a part of in work, there's never been more than like seven or eight people on my team with one manager. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, it doesn't I, make I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now and I'm trying to think of what the largest group that has ever accomplished anything yeah. has been for me and, and it's always <laughs> been uh, like smaller groups maybe yeah. part of a wider organization but like just smaller doing actual like work together yeah yeah so the 25 number was a shock to me because i i don't see how murphy can form any kind of solid working relationship with his cabinet members and maintain his public office duties and then also form any kind of tangible relationship with the new jersey community that he serves so it's very vital to any kind of successful operation to strategically consolidate and streamline your departments. And this is how Murphy should be evaluating um, his cabinet. You know, how are you making sure that the proper function of the state is happening? Is that your cat? Yeah, you're. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
trying to decide what is essential to the proper function of New Jersey basically is very important to a government entity, just as it would be to any kind of corporate or even small business. You know, you want to have cross-organization collaboration with departments that not that they do the same thing, but that they could probably communicate with one another and, you know, reuse resources or, you know, make connections with people and other businesses that they might work with day to day that could help. And like, you know, you get more bang for your buck in that way. You know, if you're using a certain technology or you're using a certain format or you're communicating to the public in a certain way that's been really beneficial, it's going to be hard to spread that knowledge across the cabinet if you're not you know, united in that way. And you don't have those relationships because no one wants to, no one wants to look stupid and no one <laughs> wants to act like they don't know what's going on in other departments. You know what I mean? Because it just looks like you're not paying attention. So this all brings me to my point of this segment is how would I restructure Murphy's cabinet and make it more effective in leading the state? So the Harvard Business Review article that I was, you know, reviewing said, quote, the best leaders stay mindful of the ever-evolving demands of the job and continually tweak their teams as they go. And um, exactly how does one do that? The article says, the research shows that the more closely related a company's businesses are, the greater number of functional specialists in the top team, suggesting that, that the corporate core becomes more involved in running those businesses. So because the various businesses within a company draw on the same functional expertise, like marketing, research and development, and so forth, and because the expertise is strategically important in differentiating the company from its competitors, it needs to be represented at the highest level of decision-making where it can be most effectively leveraged on a global basis. So it's arguing that if you have, like I said before, you have these specialists and they have similar skills and knowledge and mindset, if you're not allowing them to collaborate and be cross-functional, then you're, you're limiting your capabilities. So how would I <laughs> divide up the 25 cabinet members is as follows. So I kind of made it in a corporate structure. So I made, um, and I'm not including the Lieutenant Governor or Murphy, because they would be, because Lieutenant Governor is supposed to stand in when Murphy's not there and they would be basically the like the CEO. So how I organized it would be that we would have the chief of staff be the secretary of state. So the head of the state department, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but <laughs> Taisha Wei. And then, and I'm going to list these, I didn't even know all these cabinet members existed. So should I review them first? Uh, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, okay. about them? And uh, I think that'll be helpful. Okay, so I'm going to start from the top and go down as fast as I can. I'm going to probably like edit it so it's quicker. Oh my goodness. So many people. Um, <laughs> then we have... Is that, is that all? No, there's 25. I don't know if I should keep going. <laughs> oh, should you? Uh, I guess not. I didn't realize there was 20, that many of them. I told you it's 25. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's just the, the amount that 25 is, it, it didn't, it wasn't evident to me. It didn't, didn't <laughs> you? Until now, just edit it all out. Fuck what it. do you think? What do you think? I, yeah. It's so long. And they're, they're even the things that they do are obscure. Um, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, so that's 
Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. You asked, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not? Go through yeah. all of them." And you're like, you asked. Long. I was like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> you asked, and I delivered, Mike. Uh, but that's okay. a few of them. If I were to go on, we'd be here forever. But this is this is what I'm talking about. It's this bureaucratic bloat, and I want to trim it down, make it yeah. simpler for Murphy or me I when I have governor. One can't be consolidated, and just the departments have more authority instead yeah. of them. Exactly. It's like a new department for every little thing that there is. Yeah. So I created out of the 25, I think I created like six or seven, like smaller sub departments where they could duke it out to see who's the head of it. But basically this is how I would reorganize it. So I'd have the chief of staff, which would be the secretary of state and Taisha way. She would operate as someone who, because of her department, she kind of oversees a lot of things. So in the cabinet role, she would also act as like a, almost like a mediator, you know what I mean? And also be able to, if Murphy or the Lieutenant Governor um, wasn't able to sit in, she'd be able to hold it down and deliver the information to them if they had like a cabinet meeting. And then following that, I have the Innovation Technology Department. So I learned this when I was researching it. So there's this woman called Beth Novick, and she is the Chief Innovation Officer for the Office of Innovation, but they don't have a website on the New Jersey <laughs> government site. So I couldn't get much information. Of course, on... of course they don't. Yeah. And, but I would assume based on my corporate experience, she's supposed to be, you know, the innovator, you know, she's supposed to be that ag agile team and the people who report into her that kind of can go, you know, cross-functional and see what information could be shared, what technology could be shared. So that's why I paired her up with Christopher J. Ryan, or Reen, R-E-I-N. We don't pronounce things correctly here. Um, but he is the chief technology officer of the Office of Information Technology for New Jersey. So I wanted to pair them together because in my mind, innovation and technology kind of come hand in hand. And if you have them as their own kind of cross-functional, like they kind of hop from team to team or from department to department, they could actually be more lean and share information and insights and make things more transparent and kind of save resources instead of having every department have their own contract with specific companies to outsource stuff. They would be able to really streamline that and share information, resources, and share legacy knowledge, which is kind of always hidden in bloated bureaucratic institutions. So next up, we'd have the finance department. So they could duke it out between them. So the person who'd be auditing everything and their department would audit basically the state. You have Kevin Walsh, who's the acting comptroller for the office of the state comptroller. And then you'd have the budget person who would, and that's why I paired them all together is because they are all in like the finance world, but I don't know if they're communicating with one another and they'd be able to share more information together if they were this closer tight knit group. So with budget, we have Elizabeth Meyer Mayuno. M-U-O-I-O. -O. Um, she's the state treasurer for the Department of the Treasury. And then we have financial industry oversight. So Marlene Caridad, um, she's the commissioner of the Department of Banking and Insurance. And then we have basically like a sub-department of economic quality for businesses. So Tim Sullivan, he's the CEO of the Economic Development Authority. So they basically work with businesses in the state and they help them secure finances and basically incentivize businesses to operate within the state. Um, so having those 
four people paired up, not paired up, but grouped together, um, made more sense to me because their departments and the people that work for them, you're going to have people that could overlap functions. You're going to have people that have similar knowledge, but they're not communicating and they could brainstorm to make things happen financially for the state. But because they are you know, siloed in their specific departments reporting these specific cabinet heads, it's going to make it more difficult to do fancy financial footwork, which is vital at this time of <laughs> a budget nightmare with uh, COVID in New Jersey. And then moving on, we have the security team uh, or security department. So we have state defense and policing. So they would be the, the Department of Military and Veteran Affairs. We have Adjunct General. Uh, this is going to be um, Jam- Jamal Belial, B-E-A-L-E. Um, <laughs> uh, so accurate am I pronouncing these things. And then we have the Attorney General, Gabir Gurwal. We've mispronounced his name before, and I'm definitely mispronouncing it again. Um, <laughs> we just kind of get soundtracks of other people pronouncing the names and yeah, just insert them. Insert it. Uh, and then we have the Department Department of Corrections Commissioner, Marcus Hicks. We have the director of the Office of Homeland Security, Jared Maples. And then we have the acting superintendent of the, the New Jersey State Police, Colonel Patrick J. Callahan. And all those people working together, you're going to have one of them, like I said, duking it out to see who's the head of it. But having one person in charge and communicating with each other, you're going to be able to... I guess share information a little bit easier, especially having the attorney general embedded in that, you know, it's, it's just going to make, I don't know if it make things simpler, but it's just grouping people where it makes sense. And you often have like times like today, you have the, um, the military and the police and all these different entities working together. And if they're not aligned and communicating effectively and training with best practices, it's going to spoil you know, the rest of the teams. So having them in one group, it'll be easier to communicate and to regulate. And that's why I put them together. And then we have Department for Sustainability and Environmental Quality Control. So we have the Department of Agriculture Secretary, Douglas Fisher, and the Commissioner of the Department of Environmental Protection, Catherine McCobb. So they kind of go hand in hand. One's, you know, protecting and serving for the agriculture and the other person's making sure that agriculture is pure and safe. So putting them together, they can put their heads together a lot easier and um, make things happen a lot easier for New Jersey. Then we have a very vital one, um, facilities and transportation. So this is where there's a lot of infrastructure related stuff and having them together. Like I said before, you can make sure that if you have a great government contract position, you could use it for other aspects. So we have the Board of Public Utilities President, Joe Bioranlizio, <laughs> and then um, the Department of Community Affairs, Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver. Um, she's the commissioner of that department and the chair and chief administrator for the Motor Vehicle Commission, Sue Fulton. And then we have the commissioner for the Department of Transportation. So Diane gutierrez scarcity <laughs> but 
it just makes sense to group them a little bit because they're working for infrastructure and roads and working with the community to see what kind of building projects they need to work on. But it just makes more sense than to have 25 people. Then we have what I call the HR department of the cabinet. So for our employment, so recruiting, we have the chair and chief executive officer of the Civil Service Commission, Deidre Webster Cobb, Esquire. Um, and we have the commissioner for the Department of Labor and Workforce Development, so Robert Bizarro Angelo. And then we have for health, you know, healthcare and benefits of the HR department, we have the commissioner of the Department of Health, so Judith Petroselli. I'm going to say that's how your name, or Petrocelli. I don't know. I'm sorry, everyone. Petrocelli um, sounds right. It sounds Italian. <laughs> If I move my hands a lot, Department of, and we also have with her the Department of Human Services. So Carol um, Johnson, she's the commissioner of that. And then with education, so talent and development for the state, we have the commissioner of the Department of Education, who's Dr. Lamont Rapolet, and then the commissioner of the Department of Children and Families. So Christine Norbert Beyer, who I mentioned before, who's very elusive. And then the Office of the Secretary of Higher Education, Zakaya Smith-Ellis. But them being paired together, I thought that if you have the, uh, the commissioner for the Department of Children and Families with the education departments, it kind of makes it um, like a full life cycle operation because you're having, like, basically, it's not DIFUS anymore, it's DCPMP, but it's basically the social services of the state is under her control. So if you're able to give families like a, a one-stop shop of, you know, what benefits and services do they have, including education, but also the different kinds of like mental health and any other kind of social services options that they have within that Department of Children and Families. It just made sense to pair them together. But I'm sure other listeners have a better way of pairing everyone together. But that just breaks it down to yeah, just seven, basically seven departments instead of 25 reporting into Murphy, which seems a lot more feasible to operate and understand and push policies through and also gives the opportunity for those those smaller departments to become more in touch with one another and what they're operating and what they're doing and what policies they're pushing forward. That's just my opinion. But that's really just me highlighting that there is a lot of <laughs> bloat in this administration. And this doesn't even get down into under those department heads. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I never even thought about it, the idea of just reorganizing the executive branch in New Jersey so that way uh, the whole government apparatus just flows smoother. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, I think you make a compelling case. Yeah, they do it all research. the time in, uh, in corporate America and in businesses. Like it just doesn't make any sense not to consolidate and streamline services. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my segment. <laughs> uh, that was really informative. Thank um, you. So tell me what? about our enemy and <laughs> the one good thing they've done. <laughs> okay. So we like to trash talk NJ 101.5 because, um, I, I think for two reasons, because they're deserving of trash talk most of the time and it's hilarious, but, uh, this time I, I want to be fair. And they had an excellent interview on May 23rd. Um, Dominsky and Doyle, 
uh, spoke with the labor commissioner, Robert Azaro, Azaro Angelo, about a lot of the big problems in New Jersey unemployment. And honestly, it's an incredible interview. So I'm just going to play it through and I'll stop at parts and we can talk about what's going on. It's tr I think it's truly an incredible interview. Let's watch. So we have uh, the Department of Labor Commissioner, uh, Robert Asaro Angelo, back in the air with us. Hey, sir, how are you? Hey, guys, how you doing? Okay. Hey. Okay. Um, I almost don't even know where to begin, but I'm going to begin with this. Um, you, uh, you had appeared at a press briefing several weeks ago, um, one of those daily COVID-19 briefings with, uh, um, with Governor Murphy. Mm -hmm. And... One of the things that has haunted me ever since I saw that is it truly appeared as if you were trying to have the Department of Labor almost look like the victim here. Hmm. By First, I just want to say he doesn't waste any time. Yeah. Uh, he literally was just like, yeah, uh, you're trying to make the Department of Labor look like a victim in this entire uh, thing. That's <laughs> sorry. This is immediate, immediate defense. Yeah, immediately puts uh, Robert uh, Angelo on the defensive here. By pointing out that um, errors are being made by people inputting information wrong, by comparing uh, numbers back from the Sandy disaster, which really has nothing to do uh, with today. And you spent literally zero time talking about uh, the failure of this 50-year-old uh, mainframe and the and the outdated computer language. Uh, you never talked about how many actual people you have hired on uh, to answer phones, which have been going unanswered. Um, why was that? Was this just really more of a public relations appearance for you instead of trying to actually explain what was going wrong with people's claims? Well, I completely disagree with the premise, to be honest. I mean, first of all, in that same well, of press conference, you I, would. well, of course, that's why I'm here talking to you. Uh, on the same press conference, I talked about the various efforts we're taking to increase the number of folks on the phones, including hiring new people. I gave a number of folks we're hiring. I talked about the hundreds of folks coming over from other divisions in our department, as well as other state departments as well. And I certainly never talked about us being a victim uh, of any kind. I'm trying to give folks the. Uh, talk about the system we're living in right now uh, and to compare it. And I don't think it's unfair to compare it to other similar situations that we've been in the past. When we had you on back in March, and, yep. and I've heard you say this, um, you know, to uh, several reporters as well, that nobody could have ever foreseen this type of thing happening with this massive number of people laid off, that nobody could have foreseen this, this problem. Yet, as I'm sure you're aware of, uh, eight days ago, NJ.com had a very in-depth story about how back in 2003, there was a 43-page report from your own Department of Labor that talked about the uh, outdated, archaic unemployment website, how it was in dire need, and how administration after administration did virtually nothing other than a Band-Aid slap to fix this. And uh, I, I just want to go over a little bit. He's actually right. I checked out that, that report, and it, it's really interesting. Just, I think we covered it a little bit on earlier episodes, or maybe I just mentioned it, but it, it the Department of Labor years ago did a study, and they were like, wow, our system's really outdated, and if there's ever an increase in unemployment applications, we won't be able to handle it, and then just did nothing with that. 
Um, maybe if they were reorganized along the lines that you were saying, uh, that could have actually gotten done. I don't know. Yeah, because you, if you reorganized, you would have, you know, like the CTO, the chief technology officer, it would make sense that his department would be able to somehow help this department. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense that things aren't being shared and being, I don't know. It's just so bizarre that you're able to have a state institution like the unemployment site and not have any kind of innovation, any kind of updates to the technology, anything until a crisis like this hits. So the context too, for people listening, I'm sure everyone knows, but tens of thousands of people are uh, waiting for unemployment checks to come who qualify for unemployment and they have not received it. There's around 100,000 people who qualify for the unemployment extensions, extensions for which New Jersey received the federal money in March, and that money has yet to be doled out. I think actually, uh, at the time of this interview, this money wasn't doled out. I think they just started this Friday, so that would have been the 29th. So on top of that, uh, I'm reading reports day after day of people who filed for regular unemployment claims in March and haven't received any money, people who filed it in April and haven't received any money. So you think maybe the labor commissioner here is going to, you know, apologize or state, acknowledge that there's been some problems? Um, let's, let's find out. And yet we really heard more in that press conference, uh, you talking about people inputting Social Security numbers wrong, rather than the fact that there's been like a catch-22 of information coming from letters you send to people uh, that contradict information from the website. Somebody on the email is contradicting information from the website. It really just seemed like quite a dodge. And I know that many people feel this way because we've been talking about this issue once a week and people are pissed. So, no doubt. So, and I just want to be very clear. I'm not trying to dodge anything. And I think we've been very honest about the limitations we have and the problems that we're well, having. Well, and, and well, well why would you say why would you say that not. nobody could have foreseen this coming when back I in the Great about Recession? The pandemic. I was talking about the pandemic and having 1.1 million filers. Even if we had updated, upgraded the web systems or anything else, it still would not have been able to handle 1.1 million filers in a matter of two weeks. It's just not possible. Why was, uh, I'm not saying New York didn't have delays, but how come they were able to get it done and New Jersey didn't? Oh, uh, because it's New York. Because <laughs> it's New York. Because <laughs> they got Cuomo. They got Daddy Cuomo. Yeah, Daddy Cuomo's <laughs> on the job. <laughs> He's sitting there filing claims himself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, and to be clear, and to be clear, we're approaching 800,000 New Jerseyans getting their payments. So while there's clearly folks who are out there who are waiting, there's no doubt about that. We're working every second of every day every second overnight, all staff, on, all hands on deck to get folks paid as quickly as possible. Every Close second? 800, what'd you say? Every second. So you have yeah. people work. Uh, I just want to, I'll back up here. I love how he's, he, he's now actually calling him out to confirm if he's being hyperbolic about having people every second yeah. uh, answering he's- phones. Because <laughs> let me tell you the experience of calling. You have to call literally hundreds of times a day to get through and if you're lucky that the person doesn't hang up on you, then you're good. And as to my knowledge, nobody, it, it, they are not open all day. I, I haven't been able to get through to unemployment past like five. I really, if you don't, if, if you accidentally sleep in and say like, start calling at like nine in the morning, you're basically not going to get through unless you have a miracle. So uh, I do find it really funny that he's calling him out on this because it's absolutely untrue that 
people are like work or if they are working all hours and I, I just have no idea what they're doing. Are they answering the phones? It doesn't seem like it. Yeah. I'm also um, trying to figure out the, like anything about the department, you know what you mean? Yeah. And they have like a contact us page, but they, and they have like a, what we are, like what is employment, unemployment insurance, but they don't have any details about them as a department. You know what I mean? Yeah. So here's the other thing too. The, the thing about confusing messages is really important because not only has the commissioner given contradictory information, people will call and get contradictory information. People will get emails that contradict stuff that they've been told on the phone. There's been um, frequent miscommunications or just confusing communications coming out of New Jersey's Department of Labor, uh, especially on, on unemployment. And that is extremely frustrating. Like these are people's livelihoods at play at stake here, and the the commissioner is just not taking that seriously. And he's very defensive about it. Very defensive. Very defensive. So let's see. I'll back up a little bit. Let's hear him say talk about the alleged twenty uh, four hour phone service. Every second of every day, every second overnight, all staff on all hands on deck to get folks paid as quickly as possible. Every so second. Eight hundred. What'd you say? Every second. So you have yeah. people working uh, graveyard shifts? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? I get emails and calls in the middle of the night all How the many? time about our IT systems. How many people exactly do you have on these various shifts? I'm not getting into the staffing number. On the overnight Why shift, not? I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. Well, you knew for a week that you were coming on the air. You had to anticipate a question like this. Uh, so let's make it an easier question. How many people have you hired? to answer these phone calls when people are calling, not getting anybody to pick up, getting a recording, say, call back the next business day, frustrating the hell out of people. How many people have you hired who are now actively answering those phones? New hires who are in place answering phones. First of all, he's straight lie, right? He didn't have an answer to that question. You run the department and you don't know how many people are roughly are working overnights. Listen. That's impossible. <laughs> He's a very busy man. Uh, <laughs> He's just above knowing things, like petty yeah. things, like staffing concerns. Yeah, like, that's not his job, okay? Yeah. Why would I know that? Uh, I like how you call me. He's like, uh, dude, you ha you knew you were coming on here for a week. You wouldn't prepare for questions that we're obviously going to ask you. <laughs> like, what, what are you here for? So let's see. I wonder if he knows how many people he's hired recently. As I said at the press conference where you said I didn't say anything about this, uh, we're in the process of hiring 125 additional folks. In the process. Answer phone calls. Yeah. You said in the and, process. And that's new hires. That's new hires. Yeah, that's There's not what I asked. I said how many people have you hired that are already answering phones and in place working? What's that number? I couldn't tell you right now. What? 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 It's insane. Uh, it's, he, I like how this he, he's a politician, right? And you could tell that Robert Azaro Angelo is very good at the kind of political lawyer lawyer speak where he asks him how many people have you hired he goes well we're in the process of hiring 135 but uh to edge 101.5's credit they weren't taking that as an answer where where you know some news outlets honestly would would just sit there and be like oh okay in the process of hiring is the same thing as having hired no he's like that's not what i asked you dude yeah like, give me the numbers most, most newscasters would also just be excited that they got him on the phone. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it would be like, yes. oh my God, thank you so much for being here. You're so like, let me softball question you a few times and then we'll yeah. end our, our segment. Yeah. But straight up, he was like, why is your department failing? That's how you basically started it off, which is funny. Let's, let's continue. And not, not, not enough is the answer. That's for sure. Well, why not enough? Especially since you have As so I many said, state workers. 
You can't just pick people off the street to do this work. You're dealing with bank account numbers, social security numbers. They need a state police background check. It's not, we can't just hire people for, to go to be like a delivery person. These are very intricate laws, regulations. Uh, even if moving folks over, other, over from other departments involves an intense training to get them trained up on how to use these systems and the intricacies of federal and state unemployment law. Couldn't you have at least hired a huge number of people who could have at least taken people's, maybe not social security numbers, but simply been there to answer phones, think out of the box, you know, hire people to actually answer the phones, get people's first, middle and last names, get their contact info, get the feel of what their issue is, and then you hand that off. We are doing that. You are doing that? Well, then why, well, then why are so many people unable to get anybody to pick up the phone? First of all, there's 1.1 million claimants, so we would need about 700,000 people picking up phones. What? What is that? What? Do you hear that number that he put out? Yeah. Since there's a 1.1 million claimants, so you need 700,000 people picking up phones. Yeah. Well, what, why? What? <laughs> what? Why would you think? What? And if you and think also, about it, you have... You have companies like at Dow Jones, the the Wall Street Journal has, I think, like three million subscribers, both digital and print. But they don't they have staff around the around the globe that work 24-7 basically that pick up phone calls and help help customers with their issues. It's basic customer service strategies. Right. And again, this is why we have such huge bureaucratic bloat, is because if you were to have people communicating with one another sharing different strategies, you would know how to basically operate a call center. You know what I mean? You would have the best strategies in place to have that happen. His logic is like on the face of it idiotic too, because like, for instance, Comcast in 2019 has 31.5 million customers in in the United States. Using like his rough ratio of like around 90%, uh, does that mean you're going to (laughs) need like 20 million to 25 million customers? callers working at a call center that work absolutely all the customers. It, it, it makes no sense it makes absolutely no sense yeah it's it's just baffling that he he said that yeah no no customer service call center has like seven hundred thousand people working they don't phones. do one to one they don't do no. eight for one to one ratio <laughs> that's not how that works um no. so it's funny because you know they're not going to let that slide service all of them on a regular basis uh, what we're doing, every single ounce of effort is going into getting people paid as quickly as possible. And that doesn't always involve talking to somebody on the phone. You would so need 700,000 people to take care of 1 million people? I'm just throwing out an estimate. I'm just uh, making numbers up. <laughs> like that's, that's what he says. It's so ridiculous. The point is, every single second that we're working is to get people paid faster. And it doesn't always involve talking to them on the phone. So you would need uh, 700,000 people to handle 1 million claims. Really? I was just throwing a number out there. My point is to have somebody be, be able to have somebody on the phone all the time. Whenever somebody needs it, we're working as hard as we can to get somebody, get folks to be communicated with via phone, email, and text. And while I know that there's folks who are out there who are still waiting, we're talking about more than close to 800,000 people getting $3.4 billion. So I do take issue with the fact that you're acting like nobody's getting any benefits out of this. That's just not true. Well, I never said that nobody was, but I know hundreds of thousands aren't. And I take issue with the fact that that press briefing that you did uh, didn't address the real problems. I disagree with that. I mean, I just I just told you, I, I laid out numbers of that press briefing and gave other specific actions we've taken to address this problem. So how far along is the process for this uh, 125 that you say are going to be coming online to answer the phones, but yet you don't know how many are actually answering the phones right now? Where is that process of these Interview. 125? Interviews are on their way of being complete. And when will they be all completed? 
I couldn't tell you that right now. Couldn't tell us. Nope. Could you bid out an outside call center? Uh, because of state contracting laws, I've already got in trouble. Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about the contracting process. New York did this. Yeah, New York. Did. I'm, I'm well aware of that. And if you looked at my press conferences from the past two or three weeks, uh, you would see things that were said at press conference about that. So what would you say to people that still cannot get their uh, money who have already gone through the process? I should have paused a little earlier. I was just thinking, like, how incredible it is for him to sit here and then just basically admit that they only got through the interview stage, which I don't know if anyone knows anything about applying to a government job, but the, it, it could still be months for you, even if they expired it, months for you to start working after getting to the interview stage, especially if they're saying- check alone takes like- Two could take more than two weeks. Yeah, and let's just assume they prioritize that so everything's like a week less or something like that. We're still talking months for people to start. They have to get trained. Um, th this is not yeah. the kind of urgency that a what state he's crisis. putting yeah, requires. And it's, it, it is a failure of, of New Jersey state government that, that this man is still in office and he hasn't been sacked like the uh, health commissioner. It's, un uh, it's unbelievable. Well, um, isn't he isn't he cozy with Murphy though? I think so. Yeah, maybe we can bring Colin and talk about this guy and <laughs> find out what the, what the deal is. But yeah, uh, there's a little bit more left. Um, let's let's listen. Process who have done everything correctly, who have actually been in the system previously. Everything was done properly, and yet it's been weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and every week no money comes in. What would you say to them? I'll be very clear. That one, folks, many of the folks who've been waiting for a long time, the longest time, are folks who are now in these newly eligible populations, especially the extended benefits, which we just turned on this week. What about the other? I want to talk a little bit about extended benefits. It makes no sense why people, all right, so people who are unfamiliar, the CARE Act uh, provided for both expanded benefits and extended benefits. The expanded benefits is the 600 extra dollars that people are receiving. The extended benefits is the 13 additional weeks that people can collect unemployment for. Also, uh, just last week, the state uh, announced that it's going to have its state extension. So it's looking at another, on top of the 13 weeks that the federal government's paying for extra unemployment benefits. The state also activated its own benefits. So that might be seven to 13 additional weeks on top of the 13 we're currently getting because the state's economy is that dire. If people who are on, who qualify for the extensions already were in the system, the, the, the state got its federal money for those extensions in March. There was no new claims that had to be filed. None of that stuff. So what took so long? that other states were able to get the extensions uh, delivered, like New York and Pennsylvania. He doesn't say in this interview. He'll never tell you. It makes no sense. It it makes no sense why people have had to wait until literally this week to start receiving money uh, for extensions. These are people who could have been out of state money as far back as July 2019 and uh, who are still unemployed. Um, it's just it's it's a tremendous failure. Yeah, and that's, a, that's another thing about the unemployment issue in New Jersey is you have people who are already unemployed collecting unemployment. And then you have people who are have been impacted by COVID by being laid off, by being having their work suspended, and they're collecting unemployment now. And it's a massive influx because of COVID-related unemployment. And the system was already bad to begin with. And the numbers are going to keep going. And there's going to be no way to get un unemployed because no one else is hiring. 
And it's this vicious cycle of, well, we're going to have to keep extending benefits. So if the website is inadequate and doesn't do what it needs to do, then there needs to be a heavy lift of some sort to fix it because it's not an issue that's going to go away overnight. And it's going to be a reoccurring issue as more people are unemployed and not purchasing and not participating in the economy. And then you're going to have less demand for the workforce. You know what I mean? It's never ending. It's like a spiraling out of control Problem. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so and, what, and what doesn't help is a bad attitude um, <laughs> from the head of the department. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Speaking of bad attitude, uh, he actually goes on and starts blaming people for for this. Let's listen real quick. Because we've talked to plenty of them who are not in those special groups, and they did everything right. They know what they're doing. They input all the information correctly. They answered uh, those uh, weekly questions correctly. And yet, they haven't gotten a dime. So to those people, what do you say? Let me just say a couple of things. One, that our staff, as the same staff here, that gave out the highest percentage of payments last year of any state folks applying for unemployment. The same people working now. So the point is that not everyone is eligible for unemployment. That's the thing that's also important to remember. About 80% got paid out last year. The I'm highest- talking about the people that your office have, have, have has told they qualify, here's what they're going to get, and yet they still don't get anything. I know this isn't the answer you want to hear, but if they've been told they're eligible for benefits and to certify, the only way that they are not able to collect monies is if they answer one of the certification questions wrong or if they somehow become ineligible because they've exhausted. That's the only two ways. Okay, you've so been approved for dollars for money for eligible benefits. The only your, way to go ahead. Your, your computer system, <laughs> when it has come to people uh, being issued a date for an appeal, has repeatedly given out the date of the year 2040. 2040, a laughable glitch. So are you going to ask us all to believe? First of all, that was a place. Can you imagine? What arrogance. First, he blames people filling out forms wrong, even though I've seen plenty and plenty of people being told they accurately filled the form out, but had to call because there's some problem in the system that messed it all up for them. And um, so he just assumes everyone's stupid. Then he kind of says like, oh, you know, some people don't qualify for unemployment. Like we're obviously not talking about those. Uh, <laughs> it's obviously not the people, uh, the group people we're talking about. And then he, then he points out rightly, he's like, your, your computer system sucks. It gives out dates that are 20 of 2040. He goes, well, that's just a placeholder date. Why would you have a placeholder date out for 2040 and not tell anybody? Uh, uh, like, like, what do you think people don't, they don't think they feel frustrated? Like I have to wait until 2040 to get, a, 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 a like a consultation with the department of labor for, for, uh, uh, or a hearing with the department of labor for unemployment. Like people are going to yeah. be mad. And, are mad. And, it's, and it's his lack of empathy for the situation. He's very really defensive is. and he does it. And he's blaming people like it, admit that the system's faulty. Admit that was a glitch. Admit that it was a mistake. Admit that the the site sucks. You know what I mean? Who is he trying to defend? Like he's very defensive. Who is he defending himself? The exactly. people who built the system. You know what I mean? Like because he's not even doing a good job of defending the Department of Labor workers. Like exactly. Like I, I understand, and I think everyone understands that they're under a tremendous strain right now. But there's serious questions about like why haven't your capacity been expanded? Oh well, we have. You hired. We're in the process of hiring hiring 135 people. Well, it's been since March, and you're only in the process of hiring 135 now. And interviews basically are just starting. And this interview is on May 23rd. Yeah, that's acceptable to you. And, and I want to point out that he doesn't know what is going on in his department. So just yeah. top down, that means a lot of people don't know what is going on in his department. 
that are in the department. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I believe that with the amount of uh, contradictory and confusing information that's coming out of the Department of Labor regarding just like one issue, extensions alone, but basically every issue related to unemployment. <laughs> Do you know they have a list on their website? So sometimes when you fill out unemployment, it'll tell you, oh, you know, you need to call, right? But they act, they didn't update that. Did you need to call thing? They have a special FAQ that you're supposed to read where it says, hey, just because it says that you may may have to call, doesn't mean you do need to call. So check this FAQ first because we didn't bother updating the notices to everybody. Well, so like how many people are calling because they don't look at the FAQ? Because why would they? They're being told that they need to call at the point of this, uh, of the website where, you know, you can't advance anymore. It, it's that's archaic. I mean, and, uh, yeah. How many bureaucrats do you need to change the light bulb? You know? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, it's almost time. I think there's only like a minute left of uh, the good parts. And then six or Are seven. You, I've got a question. Are you going to ask us to actually believe that that could be the only glitch in this system of yours that was reported on as being uh, fraught with pro- wrought with problems back in um, 2003, and that and that it's simply people answering these weekly questions incorrectly? It couldn't possibly be. Couldn't possibly be that your mainframe is so screwed up that it's taking the information incorrectly. Uh, no, it can't possibly be. It's it can't impossible. possibly be. Nope. Wow. Wow. This is pathetic. Seriously, this uh, is pathetic. I don't see how getting 800,000 people $3.4 billion into New Jersey families is pathetic. I just don't. Is, is, is it happening as quickly as you want? Absolutely not. Are we trying to talk to everybody and email everybody and text everybody we can? Absolutely. Do I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people pulling their hair out, working like crazy to get everybody their money as quickly as possible? Absolutely. And every week, the numbers of folks who, are, who aren't getting paid anymore is going down and down and down. So we are progressing. And, we're, and by next week, we're going to have another huge number of folks who are getting paid unemployment benefits. And there's folks who are definitely out there who are, who are not eligible, folks who have problems with their claims, maybe their employer is contesting. They are, they are or maybe your limited. system is a failure. How about that? Maybe your system is a failure. Uh, I don't see how paying eight hundred thousand people three point four billion dollars is a failure. Yeah, I don't see so. how. Uh, yeah, I don't see how leaving all of these other many, many thousands who absolutely qualified, who were told the money was going to be there, and they're starving to death. They're not getting their bills paid. I don't see how you could think it's anything other than a failure. And you know what I would ask you to do, Labor Commissioner Robert Asaro Angelo? I would like you to hang up, turn the radio on, and listen to the phone calls up until three o'clock. Uh, I'm not going to hang up. I'm, I'm hear these things all the time. I get emails all day and stacked. Like we don't, aren't aware of the issues that are out there is, is ridiculous. Well, we were told that you had only 15 minutes. So that's why I'm asking you to hang up because I assume that you were done. Well, let's go. Come on. What other questions do you have? I am here to defend the amazing work of my staff who have been working tirelessly since this hit every single day, every single night to serve New Jerseyans. And I'm sorry that not every single person is eligible for unemployment. That's how the system works. I'm sorry that we are held to federal standards that we have to apply by, abide by. We are not, and no one is here trying to not have people paid. I promise you that. Our goal is to get every dollar into every person's pocket as quickly as possible. If you if if you would like to talk to some of uh, the people that are having problems. I think it just basically just ends there. They just kind of like uh, argue back and forth. I, I can't remember, but I'm going to cut it there. It's already kind of long. Overall, <laughs> I, I just kind of want to say, if it isn't evident, that he did an absolutely awful job. And it's extremely frustrating because he's the top person dealing with unemployment in New Jersey. And it really is unacceptable. Murphy needs to fire him. He hasn't been good throughout this entire 
crisis he's um kind of been condescending like this as you can see yeah. this is not his first appearance it's just one of the i think more interesting ones and he does blame workers for filling out forms wrong here's another thing if you're getting masses of people incorrectly filming filling out forms maybe your form is confusing yeah and that's the fault instead of people being too dumb to fill out a form the unemployment stuff is not intuitive to fill out it's not uh well designed it's not easy for people to understand exactly what they're asking for and sometimes uh even when you put incorrect information they can still interpret it incorrectly and deny you a claim that you deserve money for or sometimes they tell you your money's payable and you just don't get the money which is what's happening to a lot of people and uh this and is sometimes you'll get like a message in the the center and not directly emailed to you and then you're waiting on unemployment checks to arrive and your direct deposit and it's not coming because you have to do another you know it's it's a lot of nonsense yeah yeah i agree so i just wanted to share this interview with everybody because uh, I, I actually thought it was really good at J101.5. I liked their confrontational attitude here. Yeah, right. it actually served the public. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, it was actually also kind of just uh, cathartic to hear that, because they, they were saying kind of some of the stuff I would have said. I mean, I would have been a little more aggressive, but I also I wouldn't have <laughs> gotten the interview because of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> the things I would have said, he would have just hung up immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so I think... Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. Uh, be sure to check out our social media, specifically our check out our Twitter at Jersey underscore matters. Also check out our Instagram for some amazing Jersey trivia information. That's Jersey Matters Podcast. We also have a website. Do check it out, jerseymatterspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks this for is, listening. This is Mike Prino. I'm signing out. And this is Casey McLean signing out. <laughs> See you, <laughs> Goodbye. See you next week.